listening to Revenant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. As I said in the last episode, uh, getting started again. After we took a couple months off, uh, we're going to be getting started into a couple lessons. Um, today I was going to go over church discipline. Now, those of you who may not be aware, because this process really isn't practiced in a lot of circles anymore, at least openly, um, and more sound denominations and at least historically sound denominations, ones who actually still try to follow the Bible. There is some usually some semblance of this done. It's just usually not according to what the apostles and Christ himself specifically said. It's usually churches come up with their own process. Um, and that's because it makes it easier for them. Um, because this process has to deal directly with sin, against heresy, anything regarding division and trouble. And as some of you may be aware of, most people's motto is don't rock the boat. Um, as long as the tithes keep coming in and as long as they keep having camp meeting and nice little quartets coming to the church and singing groups and all these sorts of things, everybody's fine, everybody's happy. Um, and I know there's ex there's exceptions to that. There are some good sound ministries out there that still apply the scriptures to how they do things. and so, But they're just few and far between. And so I really can't recall if I've ever heard a sermon actually detailing, you know, in a church, but I've actually been visiting at least. Um, I've never heard a sermon actually going over this issue. Um, maybe mention tongue-in-cheek and something like that, but I've never actually heard them actually go over with the entire congregation how Christ and the apostles specifically dealt with church discipline. Um, so the first passage we're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. So I'll go ahead and read it, starting in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thine brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And so let's start looking in verse 15. This is Christ, obviously, speaking, and he's teaching. He says, if thy brother. So he's specifically dealing with individuals within the body. So it's specifically addressed to be between brethren. He goes on to say, if thy brother shall trespass or sin against thee. So he's addressing between two individuals. Um, so if somebody lies to you or about you, somebody steals from you, somebody offends you in, in a sense of a sin then the burden is on you to deal with it first. It says, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And so this is privacy. Um, some people like to blab things throughout congregations. Some people try to gossip about things as opposed to going to the person first. And I think everybody understands the temptation of those things. Um, you know, we try to get counsel from people sometimes before actually going to people because it, it's a lot easier to vent to other people than to go and try to reconcile with somebody who might irritate you, who might actually have done something very bad against you or to you, um, any number of reasons like that. So it's a lot easier to just, just stew in bitterness. But as Christians, our job is to seek reconciliation, um, and that's the whole point of this process. So the first step is for you to go to them alone. And it says, and if he shall hear thee, 
thou hast gained thy brother. The assumption here is that the two are reconciled. That is, if the person, when you go to them, you address them saying, hey, you did this. Um, I don't know if you're aware of, but according to the scriptures, this is sin, or, you know, this really bothered me, something like that. You go to them first, and you talk to them, you know, and the goal is to reconcile. It's not to stir up hatred or strife or division. The point is saying, hey, this bothered me. I mean, and it may be a misunderstanding. You may have misunderstood something, something that you heard may have been wrong, but the whole point is it gets taken care of. Either the person did do something and they humbled themselves and they listened, and they're like, you know what, I'm, you're right, That's that was sinful, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me, brother. Any number of things like that. Or maybe you misheard, right, and you're like, oh, okay, good, I've, I heard this, and uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that that's not the case, you know, and they're like, oh, yes, yes, don't worry about it, you know, but it's reconciliation. Now, Christ goes on, verse 16 says, but if he will not hear thee, so if he refuses to humble himself, um, let's say he lied about something or stole something, something like that. Um, or let's say it's living in fornication. And he says, no, you know what? I just, I don't think that that's, that's right. I, you know, I don't agree with that. Or, you know, I was like, you know what? I love this person. I'm just not going to do, I'm not going to do that. Um, well, it says take with, if they refuse to humble themselves and repent of this, you know, um, take, then take with thee one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It should not come down to hearsay, or another way, but it should not come down to their word against your word. You know, it should not be that one person goes to talk to the person privately, and then the church cut them off. No, it should be, you should bring one or two more, two or three more, and preferably an elder, more mature person in the Lord, um, the pastor of the congregation, someone who has some standing within the body. This is talking about the context of a local fellowship. Um, and so if that's the case, and they don't listen, then go to verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, that is you plus the two or three more, tell it unto the church. So if this person refuses to humble themselves again, where you bring pastor, elder, um, depending on what denomination, what your organization is, you know, a deacon. And they say, you know what, you guys are all wrong. It's just wrong. I don't want to hear it anymore. Don't talk to me about this anymore. I'm not stopping this. Um, or I'm not repenting of what I did. Anything like that. And the point is you're confronting them with the words of Christ. You're confronting them with what Christ and the apostles and the word of God has said about a matter. You know, and I'm sure... And I can I can tell you if you read uh, Claire's friend Quicken's um, book, um, Battle to Destroy Truth. She talks about how within her specific church association denomination, whatever you want to call it, um, they were bringing in heresy into the church, and it was already well entrenched. And then she became aware of it. She addressed it with the elders, and the elders of the denomination and churches themselves were the ones apostatizing. And so it can be the other way around. And then in those situations, which is increasing in frequency today, and will continue to increase in frequency, the sound person who has not done anything wrong is likely to be kicked out. Um, people and my, my in-laws have had, had to go through that. Um, my wife and I had to go through that before we were even married. Um, people doing things completely unbiblically. Um, people cutting us off because we are wanting to talk about things doctrinal that other people may be wrong in people who we thought cared about us, and then 
you know, and I, I don't want to drudge it up. But So you could be on the receiving end of them doing this, but them still be wrong. The point is, what does the Word of God say? How is it that we are supposed to do these things? And what is right doctrine? The Word of God must be the authority. So you're confronting the person with the words of Christ in love. Always remember that. The point is reconciliation and restoration of you know, the unity of the Spirit of God, of biblical fellowship, and love of the brethren. But it should never compromise truth. So if they again refuse to humble themselves, then it says tell it to the church. You know, the church being the congregation, the fellowship, um, the assembly of believers. Could be a house church, could be a normal-sized church, could be a giant church, I guess. You know, but I doubt that many of those actually go through this process. Um, and so it is supposed to be brought out publicly to the church body then, after being dealt with privately twice, once between the first person who becomes aware of it, Lord willing, and then whenever they refuse, then you bring the two or three more, so then an elder, an older brother, a mature, somewhat of standing in the fellowship comes with them, preferably if you can, the pastor, and then at that point they refuse to humble themselves, and then they come before the entire fellowship. And so, and this is where it is assumed that they will appear before the congregation. And so it, there is an assumption here that they belong to this local body. Um, so it goes on, and if they refuse to humble themselves before the church, um, but if they neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And so taking, remember, the, the gospel context, Christ is speaking to the Jews. The door had not yet been opened to the Gentiles. Um, and so he is talking to Jews. So the body of, you know, of the people of God was the nation of Israel. And so whenever we see this actually carried on, we'll see it in a couple other passages, that whenever it switches over to the new covenant truly becomes in effect, we see these same exact principles. So nothing changes here between, you know, the gospels going into Paul, Peter, and John and their writings. So nothing changes between the gospels and going into it, which is another, you know, another statement against dispensationalism. Um, the Gospels are to Christians. They are not under the law, which is ridiculous. And so whenever it gets to that point where they refuse to hear the church, they refuse. At the end of this, it's public, you know, um, and it says that you're supposed to esteem them to be as an heathen man. Now, Greek word there is ethnos. That's where we get the word ethnic. It means a lost person, a, a Gentile in the context of this immediate immediate context of when Christ is saying it, that is outside the body of Israel, that is outside the people of God, a person who does not belong anymore. You are supposed to cut them off from the fellowship. And so and there's the process as laid out by Christ in this basic passage. This is the first main passage where the principle is laid out by Christ himself. You go, you know, you go with them once privately, then the second time you go to them with two or three more, preferably an elder or pastor, the whole time you're confronting them with the Word of God, you know, praying for them, seeking them, for them to humble themselves and see their error, their sin. And then if they refuse, then you bring them before the whole body. And then the body, if they refuse to hear everybody, then you cut them off. They are no longer to be esteemed to be a part of the body of Christ. So we'll go into the next passage. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this one is a little bit more lengthy. So we move over into the actual writings of the apostles. Now, the writings of the apostles, you have to remember, you can think of it this way, where Christ 
taught his apostles, the initial 12, you know, Judas, you know, hung himself, Matthias replaced Judas, and then the writings of the apostles, you know, when you include Paul especially, they are actually explaining and, you know, expositing or expounding on the doctrine of Christ. There's nothing new. I mean, there's new things that are opened up to them because of new revelation. You know, the unity of Gentiles with the with the Jews, you know, which but that was nothing new in the sense of it wasn't in the scriptures before. It says in the Old Testament the Gentiles would be, you know, would accept the Messiah and they would trust in his name. So all these things were prophesied. It's just these things were newly being taught to the apostles and revealed to the apostles through the Holy Spirit, just like Christ had said that he would come and he would teach them, you know. So going into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we will read down to, from chapter, from verse 1, um, we'll go ahead and read down to verse 13. We'll just read the whole passage. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present, concerning him that hath do so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Okay, so Paul starts going through, and you can see that there is such a situation that has arisen in the church at Corinth. He says, verse 1, It is reported commonly... So this was no secret matter. This was a public issue, that it was normal. It was in the sense that everybody was aware of it. It seems, it says it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Okay, so what does it mean by fornication? We think of it in the modern terms. We think of just the single act of sexual intercourse as fornication. But there's a little bit broader term there. It's a Greek word, porneia. Um, uh, BDAG has it defined as unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, fornication. So it's kind of a, this is where some of the newer Bible versions will translate it as sexual immorality because it does include um, things other than just unlawful sexual intercourse. It includes a number of things, but you see what the general term there. So it says that it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, um, literally, really, in the Greek, and human. Um, it is literally occurring in their midst. Um, it's happening within their body. It's not just around them. It's not an outside in you know influence. It's somebody in their midst. 
that is in the midst of their fellowship, in the midst of their congregation, this is going on. And he even goes on to say, and it, it's not even a type of fornication that the Gentiles approved of generally. Um, things such as uh, some, that someone should have his father's wife. Um, most people agree here that he's talking about some sort of stepmother or something like that. Uh, not necessarily his biological mother. Um, so most people agree that he's talking poor, probably about a stepmother, but which is still a form of incest. And so this was something that even the Gentiles thought was was wicked. They didn't accept it for the most part. And so it goes that he sh one should have his father's wife. Verse 2, and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. So puffed up there, the Greek word fusio, uh, means to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception. Puff up, make proud. They thought that they were better than they were. They were. They thought that they were super spiritual. Um, and Gordon Fee talks a lot about sort of they had a an overrealized eschatology, as he words it. They, you know, which makes sense when you think of the context of the rest of First Corinthians. You know, trying to always keep in mind that Paul wrote this. This is one letter, and he wrote one letter to them. So all of the questions that he's answering is addressing a congregation that are in this normal state. Um, so you think about the things that he's reproved them for whenever they're engaging in, they're going to law with one another, suing one another. Um, some of them were getting super puffed up in their minds about their spirituality because of the um, charismatic gifts and those sorts of things. Um, they were glorying in worldly wisdom. They were, you know, engaging in these things, and then they were coming to partake of communion in these things. There's a number of things that were going on there that were wrong. And yet they thought that they were good. They thought that they were spiritual. You know, they'd arrived, right? And it says that you ought rather to have mourned. And in the morning there, talking about Pentheo, um, to experience sadness as a result of some condition or circumstance, to be sad, to grieve, to mourn. They were supposed to be upset that one of them in their midst had, was living this way, that was partaking of these things. And if so far they haven't done anything about it, it's just in their midst, it's reported commonly, and they still were acting as though they're spiritual. And this is a statement towards a number of churches that I've visited, where people were dedicating, allowing people to come up and dedicate their children whenever they're living together out of wedlock, and they haven't repented of fornication. Um, that's not right. And they're just, oh, it's so wonderful, isn't it? One of the person's living in sin, that's not wonderful. And you shouldn't be glorifying it. And but they ought to have mourned. That is that you know he doesn't say, "Hey, don't sweep this under the rug," you know, which is what most churches do. You know, come visit the pastor privately; he'll deal with you, and then he'll kick you out if he doesn't like it. You know, anything like that. That's what most churches do. But he goes on to say that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Um, what talks about the word "among" there? Um, it's a Greek word means pertaining to a position within a group. And it's not without focus on immediate position among. It's talking about you 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 are puffed up, but you ought to have been upset and mourned and be grieved and sad because of this sin that is in your midst. And you ought to have had this person taken away from their position as belonging to you. And notice the constant constant emphasis among you, in your midst, you know, he's emphasizing the local body. Because this is where it was happening, this local fellowship. And so he says that this person was to lose his position among them. Verse 3, 
For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. So we have the word judged, you know. Well, that's going to upset some people if thought we weren't supposed to judge. Um, the Greek word krino uh, means to come to a conclusion after a cognitive process, to reach a decision, decide, propose, intend. And by the way, this is the same Greek word as judge not of Matthew 7 verses 1 through 2, showing that people who try to say, well, you know, judge not, that you be not judged. Well, Paul said here that I have judged. And in other places, we're commanded to judge. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, same epistle, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Though I do believe that's a different Greek word. It's more in the sense of discernment. But you see, we're told to judge. We are not supposed to use hypocritical judgment. You know, first Matthew chapter 7, where he says, you know, if, if you're, you know, you're going to tell this other person that they have a speck in their eye when they got a beam in their own eye. He's like, but what does he go on to say? People don't usually read the next verse. He says, first, take the speck out of your eye. Then you shall see clearly to tell your brother about the, and help him to take the beam out of his own eye. Why? Because the same standard that you meet out to others is the same standard that will be applied to you. And what's the standard for a Christian? It's the word of God. Whenever you are fully committed to the word of God, you can warn others about God's standards. But it says a hypocrite will not stand before the Lord. It's condemning hypocrisy. Much like the Pharisees, they tell other people these heavy burdens that they won't even touch you know, the little bit of them with their pinky finger, which is what the Lord said. But whenever an entire body is coming together, saying, no, we will serve Christ, we will do the word of God and the will of God together, it's the same standard for everybody. And so the judgment that a Christian is supposed to exercise is not, well, I'm condemning you in my, in my own sight. No, it's coming meekly to those who are equal with us preferring others before ourselves, seeking their good and saying, hey, God said this is wrong, and we need to be in agreement before him. And so we're telling others about God's standard, and we're leaving the condemnation in the sight of God. But he tells us here, when they refuse those things, we separate. You know, we don't take it into our own hands. We don't have them burned at the stake, you know, like Calvin and them thought people should be. No, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't have that authority, and we don't want that authority. We're not happy about people apostatizing. We ought to mourn over it. And so we're absolutely supposed to judge just in the way in which God tells us to. He told us, tells us to exercise righteous judgment. So Paul here says he's judged already. He's already made up his mind about what should be done. Um, verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, notice again the emphasis on the fellowship of the brethren being gathered together amongst you in your midst. This cannot be talking about the universal body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. It's talking about the local fellowship. This isn't even practically applicable to the universal body of Christ to us on the last part of the third step. How can you bring this person before the church in its totality? if the church is scattered around the entire world. No, you can bring him before the local body that he was fellowshipping with. Um, he goes on, And my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now I'll go off on a parenthetical about that, that verse, because even a friend of mine told me the other day, somebody was trying to say that this verse protects the doctrine of eternal security, when that's nothing about what it says. Some people try to say that, 
Well, you know, once you got saved, you know, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is true. You know, God will preserve his children, which is true. But they think that it's unconditional. They think that they can disobey God and still be called Christians. That's completely contrary to the scripture. And so what people try to say is, well, you know, you're just not living right. And if you're not careful, you're going to sin unto death and God's going to kill you, but he'll still take you to heaven. Don't worry about it. That is not what the scripture says, and that is not what this passage is talking about. What it's talking about is the term under, underlying flesh in the New Testament is a Greek word called sarx, and it has a very wide semantic range in its meaning. Sometimes it means literal body by the context. Sometimes it means that part that seeks to pull you against the Spirit of God, you know, and those sorts of things. There's a wide range. Sometimes, if I remember correctly, it's used to mean infirmity or weakness and those sorts of things. And that's what it's talking about. This part that this person is yielding to, they are yielding to the desires and the lusts of the flesh. It's like you were to cut them off from the body so that that part might be destroyed. That part might be put to death. You know, they'd be ashamed for their sin and repent, crucify the flesh, like we're told in Romans chapter 6, right? Or Galatians chapter 2, you know, crucify the old man that your spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's emphasizing you cut them off from the body so that it could be dealt with, that they could repent and return and be restored again into, this, into fellowship. That is all that this passage is saying. And people try to insert internal, in, eternal security um, or carnal Christianity wherever they can find it in the New Testament because it protects them. It goes on to say, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now, people have talked about whether or not glorying there is like, were they glorying in the sense that they were like, oh, you know, we're so spiritual and kind of this Greek dualistic mindset where, oh, well, we do, we're spiritual creatures now, so what we do physically doesn't matter. And people have wondered whether or not they were talking about, well, then we can just do whatever with our bodies and it doesn't matter because we're spiritual and the flesh is physical, so it doesn't matter. Um, that's also kind of an underlying concept historically of this hyper-grace movement, and some people still teach that. Um, I don't know specifically what to say. I think more it's just in the context of their glorying in their own spirituality. It goes on to say, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Now, leaven is what we think of today as something like yeast, where the pro the process by which people baked bread and those sorts of things back in the in ancient times was they would t leave a little bit of the dough that had already been leavened from the previous batch and it would sour you know and it would still have that leaven in it and then on the new loaf that they were the new bread dough and those sorts of things that they were going to start the, in order to leaven it they would mix that and fold it in and the it would permeate throughout the whole dough you know, and then the process would go to the next one. They save a little bit and put that into the next batch, you know. And so he says, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? You know, and he's using an illustration of if there is a little sin in the congregation, then it will spread just like leaven. It will permeate throughout the midst of the, and throughout the whole of that body. Why? Because it's not dealt with. Holiness requires that these things be put away from us individually and corporately. Um, verse 7, what's his response to this? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. That is the old leaven, the old way of doing things. You think about it. When you become a Christian, the old man is supposed to die. He's not reformed. 
He's supposed to die. The ways of the flesh are not supposed to be sanctified. They're supposed to be done away with. And that's the process of the Christian life. We come to Christ, we get grafted into the vine that is Christ, John 15, and then he begins to purge us of everything that gets in the way of us bringing forth fruits. These things die a little bit, a little bit more and more every single day so that we bring forth the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. The command, he says, purge out, you know, ekathairo um, means to remove as unclean, to clean out. And it is, an, it is a command. We are supposed to purge out the old leaven in our corporate bodies. That is the fellowship, the, whatever fellowship you're, joint, you're a part of and fellowshipping with. You're supposed to put it away from you that she may be a new lump. They were to expel this man in order that they may be a new lump. They were supposed to get these things out from among them because as long as he remains in the congregation in his current state, he will affect the rest of the congregation. They will no longer be considered as a holy congregation or a new lump, a lump that has not been leavened. He says, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Going to verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, that is, not with the old way of doing things, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, because leaven is associated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament um, with hypocrisy, with wickedness, which with false doctrine. Um, in the This is why most of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, except where they pictured New Testament Christianity, as some say, um, and being sanctified, and the offering up of the Gentiles, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, it typifies the unleavened bread. You think of the unleavened feast of unleavened bread leading up to Passover. Um, because it was supposed to be unleavened. With, it was pictures holiness without those things in the midst. It says, let us keep therefore the feast, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, that's in contrast to malice and wickedness. In verse 9, Paul goes on to say, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. And so he's referring to some previous writing. Some people say it was earlier in this book. I don't really think that makes sense, because in another place he mentions another um, letter that he had previously written. So he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle or a letter not to company with fornicators. Now the word company there, and that's one of the words that gives us the true sense of what he's talking about. We have to really make sure that we understand that word right. In what sense do we, are we to not keep company with fornicators? And so the Greek word there underlying company is sunanabignumi, meaning to mingle or associate with. They were commanded by Paul to not associate with or mingle with fornicators. But he proceeds to clarify some things about this. It goes on verse 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. Or of the, you know, with the covetous or extortioners, idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. So Paul specifically tells them not to completely avoid the sinners of this world, people who are not Christians. And he proceeds to tell why. For then you must needs go out of the world. The reason Paul gives us for not completely cutting off the lost sinners of this world is because we could never do this while alive in this world. You know, one of the responses to this you can almost think about historically was monasticism and convents and these things that came out of Catholicism. Well, we're just going to give our lives to God and go be alone with God out in the wilderness somewhere so we never have to encounter the world. Well, how are you going to fulfill the Great Commission? How are you going to affect any good 
in the world if you don't ever if you're not ever with them how are you going to have a job you know and even if you have a business that is entirely a christian owned and operated who are you going to sell it to who are you going to interact with how can we fulfill the proclamation of the gospel if we never associate with the lost we cannot shine a light in a dark world if we never encounter the world and this is pretty much what paul is saying you can't avoid the world completely and so consider what Paul says elsewhere. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 27. So he even acknowledges it within this same letter that if some lost people ask you to come to a, a feast or a party or something, you know, and you'd be disposed to go, there's nothing about it that would you believe you would have to compromise holiness. There's nothing about it that you believe would put you in a position to sin against the Lord. He says, go. He goes on. But now have I written unto you, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such and one know not to eat. Here then... Paul makes a difference between the lost sinners and professing Christians who live in sin. Um, so, important word here is that is called a brother. So, the word there, the phrase there, that is called, actually is translated from one Greek word, anamazo, which means to give a name to, call, name, to pronounce a name or word, name a name, use a name, word, be known. So, if somebody is known as a Christian, if they take the name and call themselves to be a Christian, but remember the context. He keeps emphasizing among you, in your midst, put them away from among yourselves. It's about the local church. So given that it is assumed that this man will appear before the church, which is not possible when talking about the universal body of Christ, it specifically applies to those who fellowship together. Now, this is a brother who is fellowshipped with regularly within a congregation. He's considered a member. Now, Adam Clark had this to say about this verse. He said, You may transact your worldly concerns with a person that knows not God and makes no profession of Christianity, whatever his moral character may be, but you must not even thus far acknowledge a man professing Christianity who is scandalous in his conduct. Let him have this extra mark of your abhorrence of all sin, and let the world see that the church of God does not tolerate iniquity. The point of it is this person professes and has taken upon themselves the name of Christ. They say, I am a follower of Christ. You look at me and you will see somebody committed to Jesus Christ. And so whenever that's the case, we are witnesses. The world is going to judge Jesus Christ by your conduct, by your fellowship. What you allow there is going to be, is going to be considered allowable. You know, when you see these fellowships where people roll on the floor and bark like dogs, whenever the pastor, quote-unquote, is living in adultery, and he's found out about it. He divorces his previous wife because he just doesn't like her anymore and remarries that one woman, and they kick out the woman who did not do anything wrong, and they keep the adulterous pastor. What does the world say whenever they see these things? I'll tell you what, they don't say holy. They say, oh, look, they're just like us, and sometimes worse. And Christ was right. He said, some of these people, they become twofold more sons of hell. Now he says, to not even eat with them. So to what extent should this separation go? 
one thing that we can be each certain of, it does not in any way compromise another commandment of God. The commandments of God and of the apostles do not contradict each other. Um, think about Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where Christ says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So let's, if we're commanded to do good things to those who are open enemies of Christians, then it is reasonable to assume that that includes those who once were Christians but have been excommunicated, because it's pretty much what we're talking about. You don't communicate with them or they're excommunicated, you know. Now, Albert Barnes said, and I agree with him, he said, I am inclined to the opinion that the ordinary civilities of life may be shown to such persons, though certainly nothing that would seem to recognize them as Christians, but as neighbors and relatives, as those who may be in distress and want, we are assuredly not forbidden to show toward them the offices of kindness and compassion. You have roles in this world. You are supposed to live in this world. You have a job. You have a family. Christ has given you commandments about how to go about those things. Now, in no respect are you to compromise your own walk or holiness, but in no respect are you, are you to disobey God either. God has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, people try to argue, as a friend of mine thinks, that this means that, no, you don't even talk with them. Well, how are you supposed to restore them? It says not to eat with them. Do not act as though you are the same. Do not show intimacy in agreement. But let's say it was your, let's say a friend of yours, known all your life, falls into adultery, rejects the commandments of God. Let's say there's an emergency. You know, he goes through, the, we go through the whole process, we cut him off, things like that. Let's say that something like that happens. The man's living in adultery or something like that. He refuses, I don't care about the word of God, anything like that. And let's say that um, the church puts him out. Let's say that the church says, okay, fine, you were, you've refused the word of God. We have nothing else. We can't have anything else to do with you regarding fellowship. And so what if that person has a house fire? What if they go to the hospital? Is it sinful to go and check on them? Absolutely not. You're not acting like they're a Christian. You're just seeing how they're doing. That actually might be a good time to talk to them. If there's an emergency, should you be there for them? Well, the Lord tells you to do good to your enemies. And in order for somebody to say that, they have to compromise every other commandment of God towards human beings. The thing that is being emphasized here is you do not show or enact in any way as though they are Christians. Now, I will say there is a line that you should not cross. If you cannot be a Christian around them, like they won't allow it, then no, don't go see them. That is somebody who is so such an enemy of God you should never compromise your own holiness, your walk with the Lord. You see, you will always tell the truth. You will always, you know, avoid the things of this world that would cause a stumbling block before you, things like that. But it's like you have family and you have a job. What are you going to do if your boss is that person? Refuse to talk to your boss? Refuse to go to the same building as your boss? No. And Christ and the apostles give us no such commandment in the New Testament. It says just do not eat with them. Do not act as though they are Christians. Separate in that way. You're still told to love the love your neighbor as yourself. Now, verse twelve: For what have I to do to judge them that are also without? That are also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? So, oh no, there's that word judge again. So he says that the church is supposed to judge internally, 
But those that are outside the body, we don't expect to act like Christians. If somebody does not profess to be a Christian, we don't expect them to act like Christians. Now, do we talk to them about the standards of God? Absolutely. That's called witnessing. Do we try to reason with them of righteousness, temperance, and of judgment to come? Absolutely. You're shining your light in this world. You're approving the works of darkness, exposing them. And even in another place where I think it was Peter was quoted as saying, you know, judgment begins at the house of God. Actually, that might not be Peter. I'll have to look that up. Um, it says judgment begins at the house of God. And if it begin at us, who are the body of Christ, the building of God, judgment begins within the body of Christ. Now, I'm sick and tired of hearing professing Christians say, judge not. And that shows somebody who doesn't understand New Testament Christianity. We are not supposed to be, like one commentator said, these little pious policemen going around fault-finding. Now that's wrong. That's legalism. We are supposed to lovingly watch for our brethren so that we all might be in the unity of the Spirit and the love of Christ, trying to encourage one another and build each other up in the most holy faith so that we all might be found in Christ without spot or blemish. And that's the point here. We're watching for our brethren for their souls, because we love them. It is not to exalt ourselves, to exalt legalism, or anything like that. It is because we care about them. So verse 13, But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So again, the emphasis of local fellowship, from among yourselves. He does not say from, you know, from amongst the mystical body of Christ that is scattered throughout all of the earth, which is not once gathered together since the early chapters of the book of Acts. And that's not what it's talking about. Paul emphasizes throughout this passage, local fellowship. Now let's turn to the next passage. The rest of them are only about one or two verses usually. Um, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 18. Starting in verse 17. Paul, closing out the book of Romans, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. That was a pretty stern warning. So let's look at a couple meanings of a couple of these words real quick, just to make sure, and it's always good to make sure you're de you're defining the words accurately. The the word mark there, where he says to mark them, is uh, the Greek word skapeo, meaning to pay careful attention to, to look out for, to notice. Um, they cause divisions and divisions and offenses, he says. They are the source of these things. The d word for divisions there, dikastasia. Um, the state of being in factitious opposition, dissension. This is the same word that is used in Galatians 5.20. It talks about the works of the flesh. that's translated in the King James as seditions. The word offenses, scandalon, meaning an action or circumstance that leads one to act contrary to a proper course of action or set of beliefs. Temptation to sin, enticement is where we get the word scandalous. So these are people who oppose right doctrine, specifically about salvation in the context here. Um, things like the Judaizers, people who were trying to say that Christians had to obey the law of Moses. You know, Hebrew roots would fall under that. Um, and are influencing others toward that same end. So these are people who 
they rise up within the body or they come in from the outside and they join and then they start causing people to be taken away from right doctrine or right practice, which practice comes from your doctrine. And they start going contrary to it. They start kind of, this is what we call a heresy. You know, heresy. It is somebody who's going off and doing their own thing. Um, and they're dividing up the body of Christ into these almost like little cliques towards contrary doctrine. And so Paul says to mark them, you notice them, you put a little red flag over them. And then he says to avoid them. That's a Greek word, eklino, um, to keep away from, steer clear of. So this is a different kind of context than 1 Corinthians 5. This is one primarily of doctrine. Now, obviously, if this is a person who's professing Christianity, they've been in the fellowship a while, you go through the steps. You go and talk to them privately. Hey, did you know that what you're saying here actually is contrary to the scriptures? You know, And then if they don't listen, they say, no, this isn't, You know, blah, blah, blah. Like they start teaching universalism like the guy who wrote The Shack. You know, and you go talk to them. And then if they don't listen, you bring one, two or three more, preferably an elder, pastor, if you can, reason with them from the scriptures, saying, hey, you're getting off into heresy. You know, are you aware of, you know, the implications of what you're doing here? You know, and especially if they're dividing up the body of Christ. And so if they don't listen, you take them before the whole congregation, you do the same thing and you avoid them. So it's just pretty much another statement, you know, of like what Christ said. What uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you avoid them, you steer clear of them, especially because these people are leading people away from belief of the truth. Now, if people fall into sin, usually they haven't, at least in the initial parts, haven't forsaken right doctrine. Now, that may be a result of what they do, because they cast off Christ altogether. But here is somebody whose doctrine is changing, or has changed, or was always this way, and they never told anybody, Right? And they're leading people away from salvation by doctrine. And that is much more deceptive than a lot of people think. You think a lot of people fall into sin because of wrong doctrine. You know, if you're told that you'd never have to obey God ever again because all your future sins are forgiven, you know, that's a doctrinal teaching that leads people to sin. And if they continue in sin, they're cast off from Christ. And so your practice comes from your doctrine. This is why doctrine is talked about regularly in the New Testament, especially here, it says if they lead people in a way contrary to the doctrine which you have heard and learned, you avoid them. So much for, well, just love them and let God deal with them. How many times do the apostles and Christ have to say, cut them off, separate, don't have anything to do with them, watch them, mark that person, before somebody actually starts listening? So read verse 18, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So Paul said that these people are not those that serve God, and therefore they are not brethren. They are leading people away from Christ. They are enemies of the gospel. Now, it could be that these people were people who never truly converted, and they came in to divide them up, much like some of the Judaizers that Paul dealt with, people trying to lead people away towards the, the law. Like I get, like again, I would say the Hebrew Roots Movement. That counts as Judaizers. They are people who are causing people to fall away. So if you hear of anybody dealing with the Hebrew Roots Movement, you really need to talk to them. Understand that they are leading people back under the bondage of the law, and they don't think that they are. But Or it could be somebody who's fallen away, and now they are no longer serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Either way, you go by where they are now. If they're doing these things, they are not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're deceiving people. Paul says, mark them and avoid them. Next, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 
um, and 14, though we'll look at a couple of verses between there for context. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Go down to verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So again, a couple normal phrases that we're coming to. You see the consistent way in which the apostles tell us to deal with these things. He says, withdraw yourselves from those people who do not walk according to the tradition which he has been taught. And so this likewise means to avoid them, from the Greek word stelo. It says, every brother. So Paul specifically says that this is a brother who is doing this. But there's this very specific practice that is addressed in this passage by Paul, and he goes on to specify what it is. If you look down at verses uh, 10 through 12, between these two verses, he says it, and he's talking about it throughout the context. It says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Note them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. That's verses 10 through 12. And so the problem was that some men were not working and were mooching of other people's work. And this is slothfulness and laziness is what it is. There's no excuse for it. And this kind of fits into the context of what Paul has to address in the first two chapters of 2 Thessalonians, where they had been deceived either by a word or letter or by spirit that the day, of, the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord Jesus Christ was at hand, that the return of the Lord was near. You know, they're in the tribulation, which fits the context of Roman persecution during the early time period of the church. You have to remember that. And Rome was in power, like Daniel said. The temple was there in Jerusalem, fitting the, the, the prophecies that the Antichrist would have to walk right into it. There's a lot of pieces that were in place where it's like it doesn't sound as crazy as what people think. And so Paul tells them, hey, it's not, I did, that's not what I told you. Don't be deceived. And so if somebody thought that there was in those days, you can understand how they'd be like, hey, there's no point in working. It's just, you know, it's just a persecution. Let's just wait for the Lord to return. And he tells them, hey, no, don't do that. Because it's a reproach to the name of Christ. If any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And so we're, we're, this is what Paul says, they were disorderly. They're not walking after the tradition which he received of the Apostle Paul and of his you know, companions. So this is clarified by what Paul says next. What tradition? You know, the Catholic Church tries to teach from this passage that you know, all tradition of the church is acceptable on an equal part and actually superior to the scriptures. And you can see from the context, this has nothing to do with that at all. Read uh, verse 14 again, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So he says no company. This is the same language, same word, I believe, as in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, where it says, you know, keep no company with them. And it says that he may be ashamed. So much for not, you know, damaging people's self-esteem. Oh, we don't want them to feel bad. We don't want to upset them. Well, that's absent from the New Testament. If they are in sin, they ought to be ashamed, we ought to mourn, and we all should be grieving before God because of it until this is restored. Then we can have joy in the Lord because it's put away. So that he may be ashamed, this is the reason for the separation. It is to show that brother that he ought to be ashamed of his neglect of Paul's commandment. 
he has brought a reproach on the name of Christ. I would rather offend him than Christ, especially if it's for his good. Now, notice what Paul goes on to say, though, in verse 15. We'll add that one on. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish means to warn. So in this specific case, laziness or slothfulness, it is not so bad as to say that he is not a brother. It is not what he says. He doesn't say, you know, you know, but go on and treat him like a heathen man or a publican. No, he specifically addresses and specifically says, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, Adelphoi, you know, he's, he's one of the brethren. In this specific case, it's not so bad that he is not a brother. Now, if it continues and the man willfully rebels against the commandment of God, that's a different matter. If somebody rebels against the plain teachings of Scripture regarding holiness, regarding separation, um, then it can proceed to him being an unbeliever. You read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where it seems to be that this, this person in 1 Timothy chapter 5, again, written by Paul, same writer, saying that, you know, he that, you know, does not provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. And so there can be a progression of this toward just sinful, wicked rebellion against God. Um, think about people who live all their life on welfare, not because they need welfare, but because they don't want to work and they're lazy. That's selfishness. But always remember, the point of this process is the restoration of the brother to fellowship with Christ and the body. In nowhere are you supposed to compromise holiness in order to have unity. It's not the spirit of unity. It's called unity of the spirit, who is called the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, that's saved, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It's only when the man continually hardens his heart and refuses to submit to God at the end of the process of discipline, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. You know, you go to him privately, he doesn't listen. Bring two or three more, he doesn't listen. Bring him before the church, he doesn't listen. Okay, separate. It's only at the end of this process of discipline that he is esteemed to be an unbeliever. He is directly chosen to turn from following God at that point. Now, I will say, I have I've gone through this with some people before. And the one thing that I have always struggled with is doing it in the spirit of meekness. And that's something that I have had to apologize for before because it's it's frustrating whenever people refuse to look at the Word of God, when people refuse to humble themselves. And that's something, you know, I need to grow in my patience with people, especially considering myself and how people have had to be patient with me before. Okay, now let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 5. If we read verse 3. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So, the main point of Paul's words here, starting verse 3, is that these people are teaching in opposition to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. They contradict him. Jesus' commandments lead to holiness. False teachers will lead to ungodliness. You know, the Lord said a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. A good example of this is the false teaching of grace 
That is the, the false idea of grace. You know, Jude mentions it, uh, Jude, Jude verse 4, where he says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our Lord, of, our, of God, into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, some of the newer versions render it, turning the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And so that's very close to what's condemned here. Um, they're teaching contrary to the words of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, which is according to godliness. Some people try to say that, no, Christians don't have to obey the commandments of God. You know, he doesn't see all of our future sins. Foreign to the New Testament. And so, and also you can maybe almost kind of lump in um, dispensationalism, the kind of hyper form of it, which says that the Gospels are not for Christians today. They're saying that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are not for Christians today. I, I can't wrap my head around that. And it's something that I was taught when I was very young in the Lord. And I marvel that I could at the same time read my Bible and think that. But I did, so I have to have mercy and empathy towards those who were deceived by it. We go down to verse 5. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. You know, so much for the word faith movement, you know, where only the best for the child of the king, right? Well, no, the Lord Paul rebukes that, saying they suppose that gain is godliness. And what does he say? From such withdraw thyself. And the word withdraw thyself uh, is a Greek word, aphistami. We see again a commandment to withdraw and separate from these individuals. And it doesn't call them brethren, does it? It says they're destitute of the truth. Now turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Should probably just be at one page over. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read verses 2 through 5. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Now, what I find peculiar about this passage, and we apply it to the times in which we live, and I do think that's an accurate description, and I'm sure it, it fits, but the world usually doesn't try to have a form of godliness and only deny the power thereof. And verse 5. I think the immediate context is false teachers. You know, the end times description of the false church system. Think of Laodicea. Um, that's just, I just find that interesting because most of the people I know that are lost, that don't profess Christ, don't say they have a form of godliness and then only deny the power thereof. You know, I could be wrong, but so looking at this passage, it says they have a form of godliness. They profess to be followers, but deny the power thereof. They do not truly possess the power of the Spirit of God in themselves. There's no changed life. Again, this includes those that deny that Christians must live a different kind of lifestyle or seek to justify sin in the life of a professing Christian. Oh, they're just carnal Christians, which is a complete misappropriation of something that Paul said, a complete twisting of what Paul said. There was no such thing as a perpetually carnal Christian. There are young babes in Christ that are growing and being purged. There is no such thing as a perpetually carnal Christian. It's completely opposed to the what the word Christian means. Now, it's dangerously close 
this idea of denying the power thereof is dangerously close to those who teach cessationism. And that's somebody I used to hold to cessationism. Now, these deny that the Spirit of God manifests in gifts of the Spirit anymore. Oh, sorry, let me specify. They only deny the apostolic Jewish sign gifts. Yeah. Now, I would say that is dangerously close to to really it's dangerously close to blasphemy of the Holy Ghost sometimes what they say. It's dangerously close to denying the power thereof. Now, th that might be an application, though not necessarily an interpretation in the sense of exactly what Paul was meaning here, but it is close enough that pe these people ought to really question themselves. Now it says, from such turn away. It's a Greek word, apotrepo. Purposely to avoid associating with someone. Turn away from Avoid. How many times does the fossil have to tell us to separate from people? And now everybody looks down on sometimes, especially discernment ministries, and obviously sometimes discernment ministries are just propaganda for a specific doctrine like eternal security, calling everybody who doesn't hold to eternal security a heretic. Now I'm not talking about those ones. I'm talking about ones like, you know, ones that actually care about the Word of God, not just their own private interpretation. And they actually care about holiness and these things. People look down on them and say, oh, they're just judging. They're dividing the body of Christ. Well, no. A sound discernment ministry is not dividing the body of Christ. It's dividing light from darkness, which the Lord said was good, so I don't know why they have a problem with it. But turn over to Titus chapter 3, which is 10 through 11, second to last passage we're going to look at. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. This is one that most of us are aware of if we've been reading our Bibles for a number of years. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. And the word heretic comes from the Greek word hereticos. There you go. It's, the, it's where we get the word. Um, pertaining to causing divisions, factitious, division-making. As I notice, the process of discipline was followed through here, the first and second Admonition or warning. What's after the first and second admonition? The third one. And so is he that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. So it is again, it's applying the same principle of go by the go to talk to them privately, second time bring two or three more, third time they don't listen to the congregation, separate from them. And this is somebody who is teaching something contrary to the person of Christ, of God, or about biblical salvation, saved by grace through faith as God defines it, not how eternal security proponents define that. And so somebody who teaches contrary to those things, who's an actual heretic, says they are subverted. They have lost their salvation, and because they have fallen into that form of sin, they're condemned. And that's, you know, separate from them, you know. Now, last passage, Second John 10. There's only one chapter in Second John and Third John. And so, don't you know, sometimes it confuses people that you see chapter 1 in the reference, and then they don't see ever see a chapter 2 or something like that. But Second John chapter ten, uh, chapter 1, goodness, um, actually we'll read verses 9 through 11 just for context. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come unto you, any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. 
So it says, whosoever transgresseth. That is, they continue in sin in some form, whether it be heresy, whether it be living in sin. And it's the same as is addressed in other passages. And abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. That is the teachings of Jesus Christ, which is what we read about in the one other passage, which is according to, to godliness. Um, similar to what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. It says they have not God. Present tense. John emphasized this very clearly in 1 John, where he talks about, he says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. That's First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. So what's the outward testimony that you are abiding in Christ, that you actually do belong to God? It's because you're walking in his commandments. Um, another passage. Um, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. That's in Christ. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. That's talking about the sense of practicing sin. You're living in sin. Little children, let no man deceive you. What does that mean? Somebody's going to try to deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. That means that God doesn't just see in you the righteousness of his son and all your future sins are forgiven. No, he sees what you're doing. Otherwise, why in the book of Revelation would he continue to say, I know thy works, I know thy works, I know thy works. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, not just the result of it. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, that is, his children abide in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. He cannot continue in sin. He cannot practice sin. The verb tense is very clear in the passage. It's talking about continuance. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. First John chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. So in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. John says you can know absolutely who the children of God are. So those churches that say, oh, well, we don't know who the Christians are. Well, really, then why? how in the world do you go out witnessing? It's, it's ridiculous. And I have to be merciful because I used to believe it. But the word of God corrects those who abide in the truth, because God has, if you any man wills to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Eventually, God will correct somebody who is abiding in Christ, and as if they yield to the truth. So here in Second John, same writer as those, as those previous passages, he is simply stating this again. If a professing Christian does not continue in the teachings of Christ, that is assuming the correct disciplinary process has been followed, then he is to be esteemed to be a lost man. We are to separate from them. So John's statement here, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed, for he that biddeth him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds, can be taken to mean the same thing, essentially, as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. So people say, well, doesn't God's speed, you can't say God's speed to them? And is that like saying you can't say hello to them or even talk to them? No, that's, you know, we're not the Amish who just reckon somebody dead and you just you just act like they're dead and you just ignore them. And that's not what it's talking about. To bid somebody Godspeed is you are, it's like you are, you're wishing them well in the path that they're taking. And that's pretty much what it is. You are not supposed to do that. And I'm sorry, if a Mormon comes to my door, I'm not going to tell them, you know, well, I hope the Lord blesses you. 
And at least not in that statement, I might say, I hope the Lord has mercy and blesses you with truth because you're deeply deceived. I'm not going to wish them well in the path that they are taking. I'm going to warn them that if they continue on that path, they will reap the consequences of it. Which is eternal condemnation. So that's what we got today. Whenever a number of the passages in the New Testament regarding church discipline process. So hopefully that helps to shed some light on it for some people. Again, this is Brother Jonathan. And, you know, my email is at the end of every episode. If anybody has any questions, comments, just let us know. We have a Facebook page. We have a YouTube page that nobody listens to. All sorts of things. So may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. And stay tuned as we're going to, Lord willing, be starting a series of basic Christian essentials. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.